All right, we're back. In this segment, we're going to talk about hoaxes and frauds, and what better example than Operation Iraqi Freedom, which is now, uh, which now celebrated its one-year anniversary. We should point out the fact that uh, Iraq has been judged not ready to hold elections by June 30th, the target date for U.S. handover of power. Uh, so there's not going to be in the election, the country that we fought so hard to bring democracy to. Uh, we should also point out that another reason we went into Iraq supposedly was to uh, to eliminate the br- brutalizing of the people and cavalier treatment of, of the masses by a regime that pretty much did what it wanted. After we've done that, we should note that um, on eBay, American soldiers are putting Iraqi war trophies up for sale. Apparently, a spokesman for the U.S. Central Command told CNN uh, last month that U.S. troops should have been prohibited from bringing items home from Iraq, but Kaiser's selling uh, $850 rugs on eBay. Uh, they're selling Korans that were picked up um, in various palaces of Saddam Hussein. Uh, someone is actually uh, putting up for sale silverware embossed with the Iraqi army's crest. Contrary to what the, the Central Command is telling CNN, uh, Adam Deringer in the U.S. military over there said that uh, we didn't think we were going to be able to get them home, but they said we could take 10 items. We went through about 15 to 20 pals, as he said, and one, there were 15 rugs there, and every one of us grabbed one, and we took them. They didn't say anything bad about taking the rugs home or artifacts. They considered them war trophies. And speaking of war trophies, the Iraqi oil fields have been secured, but um, I don't know if you've noticed, it hasn't produced any decline in gasoline prices at the pump. Now, we still haven't seen um, Mel Gibson's The Passion of Christ. That's, in, that's destined for a future program. But we would like to note an item from Maine. Apparently, a, uh, a man in Maine had to call police for help after trying to crucify himself. According to Lieutenant Pierre Boucher of the police force there, when the man realized he was unable to nail his other hand to the board, he called 911. All right, let's talk, uh, let's talk religious hoaxes. On this program last year, we spent a whole segment talking about one of the most outrageous frauds of history, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, a purported book uh, outlining Jewish plans for world domination that was basically a bad but incredibly successful, it turns out, bit of propaganda formulated by an agent of Russian intelligence in Europe in the late 19th century. It was stitched together from a couple works of fiction and apparently, uh, unfortunately, was widely believed. It had a lot to do with the rise of the Nazis and uh, apparently is still available, well, in in bookstores all over the world. But uh, an item I've been meaning to get to for some time uh, of a religious and fraudulent nature, which I think today is the day, is the famous Shroud of Turin. Now, this has been the subject of many a, a tabloid article you've probably seen while you're shopping in Safeway. An image of a piece of cloth appears to resemble the traditional image of Jesus. It appears to uh, have been, well, uh, either either painted or somehow burned into the cloth in a negative image. When you do a photograph and, and show the reverse image, it appears more like a painting. This is a fake. Yet there are something like 400 books out there Uh, purporting to tell the tale of how this really is the authentic relic, the real deal, the burial shroud of Jesus. 
Well, it will not withstand even the most rudimentary of analyses. For starters, the cloth is incompatible with New Testament accounts of Jesus' burial. John's Gospel specifically states the body was wound with linen cloths and large quantities of burial spices. Now, uh, the shroud, on the other hand, looks as though it was a single draped cloth laid under then over the body without any trace of burial spices. It also appears that to have had the image appear on it, it would have had to have been suspended, tacked up over the body, and had the image appear on it like a photographic x-ray. I'd like to quote from a very uh, excellent article on the topic which appeared in the Skeptical Inquirer, September-October 2001, from the investigative files of Joe Nickel. Uh, The Shroud of Turin first appeared about 1355 in a little church in north-central France, a town of Lyrae. Its owner was a soldier of fortune named Geoffrey de Charnay. He claimed it was the authentic Shroud of Christ, although he was never to explain how he acquired such a fabulous possession. According to a later bishop's report, written to the uh, Pope in Avignon, Clement VII, in 1389, the shroud was being used as part of a faith-healing scam. According to the Catholic bishop filing a report with the Pope, uh, the dean of a certain collegiate church, to wit that of Leary, falsely and deceitfully being consumed with the passion of avarice, and not from any motive of devotion, but only of gain, procured for his church a certain cloth cunningly painted upon which by clever sleight of hand was depicted the twofold image of one man. Pierre de Arsis, the bishop, continued and uh, noted that uh, as the investigation was conducted, they actually uncovered the forger who painted it. Quote, Eventually, after diligent inquiry and examination, he discovered the fraud and how said cloth had been cunningly painted, the truth being attested by the artist who had painted it, to wit, that it was a work of human skill and not miraculously wrought or bestowed. Pope Clement then ordered that while the cloth could continue to be exhibited, it must loudly be announced that it is not the true shroud of our Lord, but a painting or picture made in the semblance or representative of the shroud. Thus ended the scandal at Lyrae for a while. Well, during the Hundred Years' War in Europe, it apparently changed hands a few times and wound up... uh, wound up being owned by the Savoys, who later comprised the Italian monarchy. Uh, They owned the shroud until it was handed over to the Vatican in 1983. They represented it as genuine. They treated it as a holy charm, having magical powers, and enshrined it in an expanded church at their castle. In 1969, the Archbishop of Turin appointed a secret commission to examine the shroud. Their results... After involving forensic serologists who made heroic efforts to validate the, quote, blood, unquote, of the shroud, all the microscopical, chemical, biological, and instrumental tests were negative. The report, however, was suppressed, while a rebuttal report was freely made available. The shroud was further examined in 1978 by the Shroud of Turin Research Project, a group of mostly religious believers... They pr- tried to produce a favorable report, but uh, <clears throat> famed microanalyst Walter McCrone, working with them, examined 32 tape-lifted samples from the shroud and identified the, quote, blood, unquote, the group wanted to, uh, to ID, as, in fact, tempera paint containing red ochre and vermilion. 
1988, samples of the shroud's linen were radiocarbon dated by three independent laboratories. Their results were in close agreement and indicated the cloth was woven between 1260 and 1390, completely consistent with the time of the previously noted Forger's Confession, about 1355. It's worthy of note that the, the, the odd, elongated appearance of the body and face of the Jesus in, uh, in the Shroud of Turin is completely like that of contemporaneous paintings of the 14th century. That's how they represented Jesus at that time. In short, ladies and gentlemen, the Shroud of Turin is a fake. And yet, uh, I know people that, uh, that look at some of these cockamamie analyses showing pollen grains that are consistent with the Middle East and, and, and also Europe uh, as being proof. They see microscopic um, uh, bits of, I, I don't know, I don't understand some of their arguments. It's very, it's the argument of the true believer. You know, if you're going to believe it, it doesn't really matter what the facts have to say. But anyway, uh, that's one I wanted to put to rest, and hopefully we've done so. UFOs. God, that's one we could spend a whole show on. Uh, UFOs, I'm sorry to say, will not withstand scrutiny. Oh, not to say there are not unidentified flying objects. There are. Some of them are secret uh, aircraft of, of various, uh, various world air forces, particularly the U.S. But the idea of the flying saucer... Uh, the flying saucer pretty much dates back to press reports of a man named Kenneth Arnold's description of some objects that, uh, that he thought he saw flying around in Washington State, which he described as flying like a saucer skipped across water. Well, the press had a field day with flying saucers, and they've been with us ever since. It's interesting that in the modern era, as everybody now seems to have a cell phone with a camera in it, and basically everyone seems to have some sort of photographic apparatus, uh, no one seems to be able to capture a genuine UFO on film. When you look at the average purportedly good UFO photo, it's so bloody lame that, uh, you know, it just, you wonder how supposedly intelligent people can take some of these things at fake value. And I, and I, I guess I would be talking out of school, but I know for a fact that one of our fellow public affairs hosts here on this program, um, while in high school, decided to make a fake UFO photo and, and, I've, and did a pretty good job of it. It looks pretty convincing. We'll, uh, we'll come back to the UFO subject uh, at some future date, but I think the third and final uh, great hoax fraud, because there's so many, we're just going to have to limit it to just a few. Um, although I would want to mention, on this program, we've also examined... Bigfoot, Ray Wallace, the man who was Bigfoot, passed away a couple years ago, revealed that he had hoaxed uh, some of the most famous of the Bigfoot sightings, including, including the Roger Patterson film. He told Roger Patterson to go up in this one area of the mountains with a movie camera, and by God, a large eight-foot eight foot ape appeared out of the woods and disappeared back into the woods. Uh, it's still not clear whether Roger, Roger Patterson was in on the deal. But the final topic, I think, for this segment, um, uh, 
is one of my favorites. Uh, you know, in, in doing research to find things that will pique your interest on this program, I sometimes browse through used bookstores, and I found a gem over at Beer's Book in Sacramento. What does Joan say? My seven years as White House astrologer to Nancy and Ronald Reagan, authored by Joan Quigley. This, I think, is worthy of a few, uh, a few moments of, uh, of consideration. Uh, the book starts out <laughs> by White House astrologer Joan Quigley referring to the fact that she never thought she'd write a book like this, but that she was forced to after uh, May of 1988 when Donald Regan's book came out, which caused a huge international uproar. Regan pointed out to the world something that only a few White House insiders had been aware of, that Nancy and Ronnie had been regularly consulting with Joan Quigley, San Francisco astrologer, before directing many important moves by the United States government. I was hooked when I picked up this book and started thumbing through it and discovered that the uh, announcement of Anthony Kennedy's, yes, that's right, right here from Sacramento, McGeorge University's, Anthony Kennedy's Supreme Court nomination was determined by Joan Quigley. Joan Quigley determined to the exact minute what would be the most auspicious moment to announce Anthony Kennedy's ascendancy to the Supreme Court. For the record, that was 11.32 and 25 seconds a.m. on November 11th, 1987. Quigley apparently felt she could be so precise in determining this most auspicious of moments, that a man with a stopwatch gave the signal for the president to make the announcement. I like to quote from Ms. Quigley. When the word astrology is mentioned, most people think of sun sign columns in newspapers. Sun sign columns are harmless and amusing, but they are incomplete. Many of them are not even written by astrologers. Now, I'm sure that has to be the most scandalous thing you've heard today, ladies and gentlemen. Now, some of you may remember that in the second week of October 1986, President Reagan met Mikhail Gorbachev in Reykjavik, Iceland, to engage in some uh, negotiations over the reduction of nuclear arms. Well, it turns out that Joan Quigley felt that Reykjavik, Iceland, had an entirely different chart for that same period than Washington, D.C., in Reykjavik, Reagan would attract global attention. But the horoscope said that in Washington, it would just be an average week. Yes, that's right, folks. You, the taxpayer, paid for the leader of the free world and his entire entourage to be airlifted to Iceland to negotiate with Mikhail Gorbachev on the word of an astrologer. It appears that... Uh, Joan Quigley's Svengali-like influence over Nancy Reagan extended beyond that of casting horoscopes and giving her astrologic advice. She seems very upfront in this book about what Nancy Reagan listened to her about. Listen to this one. I told her she must play down all her privileged social connections and that only her publicized attendance at parties would be at official engagements and events having to do with her duties as First Lady. I warned her not to give the impression of being snobbish, or exclusive. I knew that any woman with Nancy's social pretensions would have a pet charity, perhaps several. I asked her, and the quite predictable answer was yes, the drug rehabilitation program and foster grandparents program. I told her that these two charities 
would be what she would be known for from now on. Gee, I wonder if just say no to drugs came from an astrologer. Astrology, of course, um, is a fabulous bit of fraud. I uh, was looking for, uh, in preparatory to this show, uh, a, a wonderful essay by Isaac Asimov on this topic, and sadly, I was unable to put my hands on it. But uh, uh, I will, in the future, uh, locate it, and we'll return to this topic, because Asimov so clearly outlined the problems with the notion that astrology could possibly be valid. Uh, among the arguments would be that when you compare the Persian, Chinese, Greek, Egyptian, Mayan, and other forms of astrology, you find that they are completely at odds in every respect. If Saturn being in Gemini did mean something, you think that, uh, well, somebody would have noticed with some consistency that there was a pattern there. Well, no one ever has. One of my all-time favorite uh, favorite parts about astrology is that the, uh, the sun sign charts you see in the paper are off by approximately 2,000 years. You know, the dates that say you're a, you're a, a, a cancer if you're born between, uh, you know, June 22nd and July 21st, whatever. Well, <laughs> as, the, um, as the Earth's orbit has precessed, because a 2,000, 20,000-year cycle of spinning around like a top, well, it's about a tenth of the way through that cycle, and it's throwing everything out of whack. Another chart I was unable to locate for this segment today outlined where the sun really is at different times during the year, and it was amazing. It's, it's, it's actually, the astrologic charts in the paper are actually dead wrong about half the time. But you know, devotees will discount whatever I say, and uh, non-believers will wonder why I'm whipping this dead horse. Joining us now to discuss the uh, events swirling around Richard Clark is a special guest. We're joined now by Senator Beauregard T. Claghorn. Senator Claghorn, thanks for coming on to discuss efforts to discredit Richard Clark. I don't think we need to do much discrediting to Mr. Clark. He doing it himself. How? The man was not in the loop. Well, so Dick Cheney said on Limbaugh. How can we believe him if he was not aware of key stuff? He was the counter-terror chief, sir, till the end of September 2001. Well then, he didn't do such a wonderful job. Clark said he raised bin Laden's name repeatedly. I'd say he's flip-flopping. You would? Oh, like a catfish in a canoe. I hear under oath in 2002 he sang a different tune. Can you cite specifics? I'm not aware of precise examples. Well... Neither was Senator Frist, but that didn't stop him from saying so on the Senate floor, where all you senators are immune to libel. Well, now, we can't fret over libel if we speak to the American people. Well, Joe McCarthy never did. No, he never did. What about the White House's allegations that Clark is just jealous he didn't get to be Tom Ridge's number two? Well, that old green-eyed monster can be a devil. They allege Clark is a pal of Rand Beers and a traitor to the GOP. Well, if he hangs with a guy that looks like a duck and walks like a duck, he just might be a duck too, don't you see it? No. Clark joined Reagan in the 80s and stayed through Bush. Well, Clinton too. Isn't this all an effort to discredit Mr. Clark? Secretary Powell says there's no campaign to discredit him. He says he wasn't aware of any campaign. Well, I'm not either. 
Powell also noted he's not a member of that campaign. Ditto for me. Well, of what campaign? The one he's not aware of. And I'm not aware of it either. Well, how can you guys not belong to a campaign that doesn't exist? Well, not belonging to something that doesn't exist is, is easy. It's easier than not belonging to a group that does exist. I got you there. Clark said he was told to link Iraq to 9-11, and he has witnesses. Well, the vice president says Clark was out of the loop. Are we starting over on this? Maybe. The counter-terror chief was not in the counter-terror loop. Well, maybe not. <laughs> I see. And the job he did was not that good. Oh, we are restarting. You know, and he flip-flopped, too. Don't forget he was jealous. You know, that dick clock, he's got no credibility. He sent my wife Ruby letters saying she'd won that publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes. It was a big old bamboozle. She never even won the toaster oven. But, Senator... Oh, she'd get an envelope with colors on the side and a gold star. You'd think it was a deed for the Louisiana Purchase. And that old Ed McMahon, he ain't a whit better. You'd think he'd toss in a couple of cans of Alpo. Senator? It was a lousy business, the whole thing, saying y'all have won. And anyhow, who wants to read Golf's Digest? Senator, wrong Dick Clark. You're thinking of the American Bandstand host. Not the same fella? No. Well, speaking of intelligence failures... I guess so. My staff's going to get ass whooping. Well, you better give him a talking to. I'm on it like white on rice. Well, no doubt. Senator Claghorn, thanks for coming on and please come again. My pleasure. Yes, that was Senator Beauregard T. Claghorn joining us via phone connection from Washington, D.C. That's enough for this segment. You're listening to Radio Parallax. This is KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. Oh, and I'm your Douglas Everett.